Tomorrow Today, a Cassandra in Kiev with Maria Predleska. You may know the story of Helen of Troy, and if so, you'll know that it was Paris, the son of King Priam and Queen Hecuba, who stole the lovely Helen away from Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae. If you read Homer's Iliad, or if you watch the movie version of the story of Troy with none other than Brad Pitt playing Achilles, you'll recall that Paris's brother was the mighty warrior Hector. But did you know Paris and Hector had another brother and a sister? Polydorus, the youngest of Priam's sons, was killed by Achilles during the Trojan War. And their sister? That was the lovely Cassandra, a woman so beautiful, it said, that the god Apollo was left absolutely smitten when he first saw her. In courting Cassandra, Apollo gave her a gift, the gift of prophecy. But as Greek tragedies tend to go, Apollo's affections were unrequited, and as it turns out, the gods, like some American politicians, don't handle rejection or losing very well. And so when Cassandra refused Apollo's romantic advances, he placed a curse on her, ensuring that despite her ability to foretell the future, no one would believe any of the warnings she gave. And so when Cassandra warned the people of Troy, Imio Danios et Dona Ferentes, to beware of Greeks bearing gifts, they ignored her, and they rolled that big wooden horse right into the city. And the rest, well, the rest is history. You know, the philosopher George Santillano once famously said, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that's why I've been so looking forward to chatting with my next guest. Maria Probleska is a student of history, and in some ways a modern-day Cassandra, because Maria is Ukrainian. And she's joining us today from Hamburg. Uh, she's just left her home in Kiev, and I think we'll be returning again soon where her family is. Uh, and to put this conversation in some perspective, I should mention that this episode will be airing first on June 24th, 2022, four months to the day from Vladimir Putin's criminal invasion of this peaceful and prosperous country. Maria has been warning or had been warning everyone she knows that the invasion was inevitable, that it was imminent, and no one, including her own family, would really believe her or listen to her. So I want to talk to her a little about that and, and what life has been like since the invasion and what the future will likely hold for this wonderful country. Maria, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a huge honor for me to be here and have an opportunity to actually share about my situation, about my country and the Ukraine-Russian uh, war that's going on right now. And yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to share as much as I can. That's terrific. And uh, let me uh, uh, offer our listeners, Maria and I actually have met before. We met when I retained her company. Uh, she works with a company called Lemon.io, which is a tech company based in Ukraine, and it's actually led by Alexander Voldovsky, who we've had as a guest on a previous episode. And Maria actually is the one who introduced me to Alexander. But Maria is, candidly, she was so impressive when I met her that the day I met her, I asked her if she would come on and she would do the show and talk to you all. She won't tell you how impressive she is, so I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> Maria has a bachelor's degree in mathematical education and, you know, underachiever that she is, she did a second bachelor's degree in entrepreneurship. She worked as a freelancer in data science and art journalism. And even before the war, Maria was volunteering in Ukraine for several medical and ecological causes. 
and she spent her spare time, what she had, uh, her free time traveling, exploring other cultures, and giving tours in and around the city she was born in and that she loves, Kiev, Kiev, Ukraine. And so, Maria, before we even begin, I'm going to ask you to take me on a tour of Kiev. I, I want you to take me, and and let's make this a year ago, right? If you would have taken me on a tour of Kiev, what would you have wanted to show me? What, what should we see? Oh, wow. First of all, I would love to know a little bit more about you and what you like to explore, uh, usually when you travel. But uh, for me, like, if you just say, like, to show my Kiev, how I see it, right, um, I would definitely make a tour with a mix of history, because Kiev, it's an ancient city. It has a history of over... 10 centuries back ago, uh, and it has a few UNESCO heritage sites. Uh, at the same time, it's a pretty vibrant city, uh, with some people would call it like a hipster vibe or something, but <laughs> it's a dynamic city. Take me to your favorite places. If you had a Sunday off and you were in a tourist frame of mind, if I came over and it's a Sunday and I say, you know what, let's just, let's just go. Just surprise me. Take me around. What are your favorite spots? In mm -hmm. The first stop, uh, it's definitely going to be Golden Gates. It's the first entrance. If you would go like uh, 10 centuries ago, if you would be entering the city, that's the main entrance you go. It's a beautiful area and it's still one of the most beautiful uh, districts in the city. It has uh, its... Um, so the city is being divided. There is an upper city and there is a down city. Golden Gate's in an upper city and it's, it's kind of like an old city if you go wherever in other European countries uh, in the capitals, they have old cities. So that's where it is. Mm -hmm. But if you go into the courtyards near Golden Gate's, you will get into the wonderful art galleries, bookstores. You will have secret spots with, um, I don't know, wonderful bars, uh, <laughs> yeah. coffee shops. I mean, coffee culture, it's kind of a big thing here. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, from all of my friends from abroad, from US, from uh, Europe, from in different countries have been visiting me and like, trust me, from my experience, Ukrainian coffee is the best. <laughs> I have friends in Seattle who are not going to agree with you, but okay. So Ukrainian coffee is the best. <laughs> I'm open. Feel free to challenge me. But for now, I haven't been to Seattle yet, so. I have friends. I was in Melbourne, in Melbourne, Australia, and they say the same thing. Oh, the coffee in Melbourne is the best, and it's because of the water. And so now... I'm going to have to come to Ukraine so we can have a contest. And I, that's, look, one of my passions, and I was actually mentioning to you before we started recording, that's really what I, I, I think of with these conversations, right? Is if we could sit together over a cup of coffee. And so now I know mm -hmm. that there are great coffee shops in, in Kiev that we could come and sit up. What's your favorite? What's your favorite coffee shop in Kiev? I, I, I hate to, you know, give it away. We'll give them an endorsement. Holy caramels. <laughs> Holy caramels. <laughs> I don't have favorites at anything. I don't have a favorite color. I don't have a favorite place. I don't have like favorite clothing or anything. Like <laughs> let's be different and we have different moods. Um, so I have a favorite coffee for different moods. Let's keep it this way. <laughs> 
It depends on my mood. I like it. I like it. Look, that's a cool answer. I love that. And, you know, you talk about that the history of, of Ukraine, uh, the country, the, the city of Kiev, uh, it, it's astounding to me. Uh, you know, when we talk about, you're talking about you go to the, the gates and it's like 10 centuries old. There's this British comedian, I don't know if you've ever heard him, uh, Eddie Izzard, and he does this one bit where he comes to America and he says, you know, and they're showing me America and they talk to me about this one building that's that's a historical landmark and it's 60 years old. And I'm thinking, surely not 60 years old. Huh? And <laughs> it always, uh, it, it, it's funny to me whenever I travel to Europe, you know, you're talking about, you know, when I went to France, it was like, oh, that's where Descartes lived and someone else is living there now. You know, my producers, when they were doing some research on Ukraine, they came up with a couple of factoids for me that just blew my mind. Uh, and for those of you listening who don't know, and, and I'll, I'll steal some of Maria's thunder, some of uh, her, her historical lens, but Ukraine, it turns out, is one of the oldest places that has con- been continuously inhabited by humans on the planet. Ukraine is sort of where humans begin their journey, their story. Hunter gatherers first found their way there some forty five thousand years ago, uh, and in fact, the the Sredny Stug culture, uh, which was settled in Ukraine, was among the earliest cultures to domesticate horses. And so, this is really where a lot of human history uh, has its genesis. When you talk about an ancient history, I mean, we're talking about holy cow. But then, you know, I I started looking myself; it, it intrigued me so much. And I was looking at this relationship, and and I want to get into this with you, the, the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. As I was investigating a little bit, and I was looking into the history of Ukraine, and and specifically I was looking at the, the fraught relationship that Ukraine has had with Russia uh, over the last, well, hundreds of years. Well, I went back and I found that Russia first claimed sovereignty over what is now Ukraine uh 368 years ago for the first time, back in 1654. And it's been an ongoing thing ever since with Russia trying to dominate, trying to control Ukraine. Uh, in fact, we talk about, you know, the Russia's invasion of Crimea. And I found that the first, oh, I actually was Googling, I was looking at the first annexation of the Crimea, thinking that we'd go back, you know, to a couple of years ago. And it turns out Russia first took over the Crimea in 1783, which for history buffs, those of you listening in, that happened to have been the same year that the American Revolution ended, that we signed the Treaty of Paris and formally ended the American Revolution. And then, you know, I fast forward a little bit uh, into the 1930s and millions of Ukrainians die uh, as part of the, uh, what, what I guess is called the Holodomor, which is uh, sort of the the Ukrainian genocide, Stalin's collectivization campaign, his starvation, intentional starvation of the people of Ukraine. Ukraine gets annexed again uh, in 1939 as part of the Western Ukraine anyway, as part of the Soviet Union under the terms of the Nazi-Soviet pact. And then, you know, during World War II also, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Maria, but it wasn't really Russians who were suffering, who were dying at the hands of the Nazis. It was Ukrainians. What I see is 5 million Ukrainians died fighting Nazi Germany, and over a million and a half Jews were killed 
by the Nazis in Ukraine. And yeah. If you yeah. wouldn't mind my asking you to put on your historian hat for a little bit. Wow. That is true. Uh, everything you just had is f just facts, you know? Like, when you look into history, uh, we can see a different uh, situation through different angles, but the things that you mentioned, it just already uh, proven facts. And uh, uh, that is something I promised myself. I give myself a word that I will not be accusing anyone during this episode. Uh, but it's something like I have all rights to be emotional right now. And uh, I just can see how um, certain countries and media just transform situation to different perspectives and like for me it's so obvious right now what's going on but yeah it's not so obvious for majority of the world and um again no accusations well and, and i think it's offering a frame and a context that isn't necessarily consistent with reality and it's it's almost strange for me to hear you say that you don't really attribute blame, that you don't accuse, like the Russian people. You know, and I told you the last time we spoke, that I did uh, a postdoc at Moscow State University. And and I was struck when I went there by the Russian people were were lovely, wonderful people. Uh, I, I enjoyed my time with them very much. And it was hard for me to reconcile what's going on with that. But from what I hear from you is, you and I are, are sort of in agreement. This isn't the Russian people per se. This is a couple of lunatics of of evil people who are directing these efforts. I mean, to name names, this is Vladimir Putin, right? And this is his inner circle that are enabling this sort of thing. Do you truly, you don't bear any animus to the Russian people? Uh, you know, um, that's a good question. Um, I, would, I would answer it this way. Uh, my sister husband, he's a Russian Federation citizen. Oh, wow. At the same time, even before uh, Russia invaded uh, Crimea in 2014, and even before he met my sister, which was more than 10 years ago, he did not reflect anyhow to his country, and he, he saw what's happening, and he just didn't want to be a part of it because his human values and here I would just highlight not the nations or anything, but just hum humanity and human values. It just not interfere with what was, what was happening there and how would majority of people there think and behave. So he was trying to escape it. Um, and he decided to leave Russia again a long time ago before everything, uh, not everything, yeah. but Ukrainian part active conflict happened in 2014 and at the same time uh i would just would like here to make um a metaphor or allegory let's say we are trying to eat healthy and to do healthy choices there are a lot of fast foods and there is a lot of like coca-cola or it's super tasty but it's not healthy for us right and we make the decisions either to eat it or not to eat it. Mm -hmm. uh, producers, they don't make us buy things and eat them. We make a decision to buy something and to eat it and be healthy or to do unhealthy choices. And I would say overall, people are pretty the same, in my opinion. We just, sure. all of us want to be happy. 
All of us want to be healthy. Uh, we want security around us. We want our family and closest ones to be happy. And it's all over the world. But it's also impossible not to um, accept the fact that environment and countries also influence us. And uh, the power of propaganda or even not the propaganda, but just I don't know what, to be honest, how it affects the rest of the people. It's just a nonsense. And statistically speaking, again, if you look at the facts and what people do and how people think there right now, I don't know how it was back in the years when we've been studying there, yeah. but it's just not human, not humanity choices, not like religious religious choices. I, I hear you. It's kind of hard to reconcile when you when you put it that way, and I, I can't, I agree with you. Absolutely. When I was in Russia, when I was in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and I met these people, I was struck by the fact that they're just ordinary people that they, you know, to your point, they love their children. They want to be secure. They want to be happy. They want to, you know, be able to eat, uh, pay for their living. And yet you, when you hear so much of the population that's actually bought into some of this, uh, I, I tend to agree with you also this is, you know, the manifestation and the effect of propaganda. I was just actually, coincidentally, I was listening last night on the news, and I, I forget what the name of the, the main news channel is. That's that's sort of the bullhorn of the Kremlin. When I was listening to this, they had this a clip from this newscaster, and she was saying, this is actually a civil war that's going on in Ukraine and they're supporting one side or the other, which what, what's astounding to me is the denazification bullshit didn't work, right? So what Putin was saying that he was going to go in and denazify Ukraine, despite the fact that, you know, your President Vladimir Zelensky is half Jewish and his, uh, his parents, his grandparents, you know, fought the Nazis. And so this was a bullshit story that wasn't going to fly anymore. The fact that it was a special military operation, that wasn't going to work either. The fact that this was really Russian territory and it was, you know, Russian citizens in Ukraine who were calling for help, that bullshit story didn't work anymore. So now we've spun to this latest nonsense that, oh, there's a civil war there and there is the one group who hates Russians who are in there and so... We're going to the defense of the people who are fighting against the anti-Russian, the Russian people in Ukraine. And and such, to your point, such patent nonsense. How do you even, how do people come to believe that? And I don't, I'm, I'm a psychologist. And look, I, I understand how you can be duped, how you can fall for something. But when the story, when the lies keep changing. You know, it's it's what St. Thomas Aquinas referred to it as ignorantia affectata, a willful ignorance. You almost want to be. Yeah, and even more, uh, there is one thing that, um, like, lots of people do not want escalation right now. Yeah. That is logical. Neither Ukrainians don't want to, and we would love to make it in the peaceful, we would love to resolve it into the peaceful, uh, democratic, and just negotiable way. Um Unfortunately, it's not possible with the current enemy that we have. Um, so the only way we can actually solve it is it's into the on the battlefield. Um, but if we're going away from that topic slightly, I can see right now from what I read um, in the Western media is that people think that Ukrainians hate Russians. 
Well, we're definitely angry. But again, if you look into the history, like me personally, I'm not so sure that I would ever want to have anything in common with a Russian citizen, even though I have family there, even though my sister's husband is Russian citizen. And I know a few Russian people who are actually supporting everything that sure. supports Ukraine and uh, they want the terror uh, to be ended in their own country. But me personally, like with a stranger I met somewhere, I'm not so sure that I will have time and I would like to do some effort to understand who is who, you know? And my inclination would be to ask if that's, still the case if that was the case before hostilities the only problem is there's never been a before hostilities during your lifetime right i mean russia has been hostile to ukraine at least for your lifetime i, I mean for hundreds of years now mm-hmm. and so it, it's remarkable to me that that you don't have even more vitriol right that you're not angrier that you're not saying all russians are evil and uh, I hate all Russians. You're still saying, "Look, I don't know that I would everything level playing field that I would pick a Russian to be my best friend, and that I would necessarily go out of my way to be friendly with somebody who is Russian." But to some extent, from what I hear from you, you give them some responsibility, the Russian citizens, for buying into this nonsense and consequently enabling it. On the one hand, but on the other hand, I mean, I hate to to say they're victims too, but to some extent, they are victims too. Uh, here I would agree and disagree. Um, yeah. What I would like to say is that Ukrainians, we are a peaceful nation. And we always focus on ourselves, on our growth, on evolution, and how to make our own country better. We we are not the ones who, you know, like, would like to invade some other territories. We are just, we are where we are, and we focus on it, and we try to evolve it. What I'm trying to say is that, like, in a few generations, maybe with the next generation, everything will be hopefully uh, well again. Yeah. But I wouldn't call the ordinary people there like victims because at the same time, I have my sister's husband, but I also have my family who live in Moscow um, and relatives who live in Moms, Omsk, uh, which is Siberian, uh, Siberian area. Wow. And like, my bloody family, you know, like I've been to Moscow, I've been to Omsk and some areas nearby there. They think the other way and don't they don't believe their own family, but they believe that Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's that's one that's been like blowing my mind. I've I've I didn't realize you have family in Moscow. I've I've heard reports of other people who have family in Moscow. And while you were sort of a Cassandra within Ukraine and 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 we'll get in. I, I'd love to talk more about that in a few minutes, about how your own family didn't necessarily believe you. What you're saying is your family in Moscow still believes the nonsense coming out of Vladimir Putin. Even more, I have family in uh, Donetsk area, Makeevka, and I have a family in Crimea. And I spent all my childhood summers in Crimea. And the whole Crimea I knew better than Kiev at some point at that time. And those relatives also don't believe me and don't believe wow. those who are on the, in Kiev or in the central part of Ukraine. And that's something that just, it hurts my heart so much. But um, the first day in, I was in Kiev 
uh, on the February 24th, 25th, uh, when we've been bombed. Yeah. And there was some religious holiday. I don't even remember what it what it was. And our relatives from Makievka, um, again, Donetsk region, uh, occupied territory in 2014. Uh, they sent us some gift, like ma'am with kittens and celebrating with that religious holiday. You know, it just blows my mind. It, 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 that, I got to tell you, really does. I mean, it's when you're calling your relatives and saying, I can't talk right now because, you know, there are bombs dropping. What do they think? You're like making this up? I, it, that what, what what could they even imagine your motivation is to lie about something like this? And And I guess, I don't know, th- that people have to delude themselves to such an extent that they would rather believe the the nonsense that's being fed to them through the media in Moscow, uh, in Russia, rather than simply saying, oh, oh, here's my cousin, my niece, my relative Maria, who's calling me up and telling me we're in fear for our lives. You know, it's it, it's just mind-blowing. And, and, I mean, to that point, you ended up, uh, as I understand it, sort of taking a leadership role even within your family in Ukraine. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you took in, you know, your mom and you took in a bunch of other people and there's this family unit that you had to take charge of. If you don't want my asking, and I know you're never supposed to ask a woman her age, but you're young, right? You're younger than my kids. How old are you? Again, as I told you, I'm an open book. Uh, I'm 25, uh, though pretty soon I'm going to be 26. Oh, my gosh. You're, well, you're 25 and a half, <laughs> almost 26, gee whiz. So 25 years old, and not only because you're a student of history, you see this coming, you see what's happening, you're trying to communicate with your relatives in Russia and telling them this is horrific and they're not listening to you. You're telling your your family members in Ukraine as Russian troops are amassing on the border that this isn't a game, this isn't an exercise. They're coming, and we have to get ready. And everyone's ah, it's just Maria, and you know you're you're young, and then you step up and you become sort of the nearly the matriarch of this clan, right? As I understand, you you now have a collection of uh, like a, a ten, a dozen family members, and you're the one who's having to coordinate all this. Is that right? Not precisely. So I. I wasn't sure that that's going to be such invasion happening. And right now I understand how dumb I was, to be honest, because uh, again, I used to volunteer quite actively in 2014 and 15 and 13. And I've met soldiers who've been on the front line and I've gone to, I've, I went to hospitals uh, helping as much as I could. Yeah. And if I just called one of them some of them, they were still on the front line, like, I mean, this time, this year. If I just call them and ask, like, guys, do, what do you think is happening? And they would definitely tell me, like, Maria, it's there is going to be a war, if not now, the later. And if you think that way, we have a war in Donetsk area and Lugansk area for more than eight years now. And 
it's logical that at some point there would be an escalation, but for some reason I was in denial um, for years and like you just adapt to it, you get used to it and it's like, okay, there is a war, I just donate some amount of money on a monthly basis, but I continue living. And yeah. in my perspective, it was, I didn't think it's gonna happen, but I was preparing for the worst because I had some situations in the past that taught me that you need to be prepared for the worst. And I didn't think it's gonna happen, no. But I was just cheering everyone like in my family to prepare just in case. And nobody believed me. And even more, I'm gonna tell you, um, I have a, a pretty fun family. I am like, I'm thrilled in what family I was grown. Um, and like, I think I'm blessed at the family where I'm, I'm a traveler, I love traveling. And my grandparents, they used to travel a lot, even Soviet times outside of Soviet Union. My granddad was a diplomat. My grandma was a science, scientist, yeah, <laughs> scientist. Um, yeah, so they've been traveling a lot, but, and they are super intelligent people. Uh, but when it happened, Kiev was already under a bomb attack. You could feel it, like you could feel the vibrations. Yeah. People are in panic. Um, like, you know, there's hell going on on the street. And I call my grandma that had to be on a different bank in our other apartment so we can be all on the same bank. Uh, there is a river, river, Dimper River, that like yeah. um, divides Ukraine and Kiev is divided uh, on like left bank and right bank. And Russia, Russian border is next to the left bank. So I was thinking, you know, like if something would happen, they would go and start doing it from the left bank. So we have to be on the right bank in case, yep. in case bridges would be mined and bombed. Uh, and everything was on the news that they would make it in February 20 something, 20 something dates. And I had an agreement with my parents and grand, uh, grandparents that they would be in our smaller apartment on the right bank. So then in case something happens, me and my boyfriend, they, we would take them by car and we will go elsewhere. But they lied to me. <laughs> they stayed in our apartment on the left bank. And when it was already under the bomb shells, I call my mom and I'm saying like, you need to hurry up. Just go here while Metro is working. You have to be there on subway. I don't know if like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if the bridge will be open. Like, I know nothing. I just want to evacuate them. Wow. And my mom tells me, um, I don't know how to say it to you, but grandma just went to buy some cheese, farmer's cheese. <laughs> In the middle of a bombing, grandma goes out to buy some cheese. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you have to prioritize, right? Because yeah, you wouldn't want to not have cheese with your dinner. Yeah. Wow. And that was just, um, and I love my family, but at that time, they were often like kids. <laughs> and my mom was saying, uh, I'm not afraid of Putin. He should be afraid of me. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying, I mean, you're 25 years old and you're stepping up and saying, guys, this is serious. But, you know, you, you take on some of that blame or responsibility. And I got to tell you, you know, people tend to look at the people of Ukraine and go, gee, why didn't they, you know, react sooner? Why didn't they respond sooner? Uh, shame on us, because guess what? We're living in a world now where as a consequence of globalization, all wars are world wars. We in the U.S. have been impacted directly 
by the goings-on in Ukraine, right? We've seen gas prices explode here, even though we have very little of our fuel comes from Russia, but it is interlinked into a global market, right? And of course, when fuel costs go up, food prices go up, everything else goes up. And so, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, the kinetic, the the bombing war uh, was happening far away in Ukraine, but we responded just as poorly everywhere in the West. The U.S. certainly wasn't making any preparations to be able to, I don't know, to be able to stockpile fuel or supplies. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, uh, was, you know, England, was France, was Germany saying, oh my goodness, we're going to have to worry about food. You know, I think everyone in the world was caught a bit flat-footed. And I think to your point, people like to almost convince themselves that it's, nothing bad is going to happen. And even if it does, eh, we'll we'll figure it out. Um, it's just, I, I think it's part of the human condition. You know, that said, I don't want to be Pollyanna here, and I don't want to try to find the silver lining, because uh, I don't think there is one when you're talking about something this horrible. What do we take from this? And I'm not talking about globally necessarily. I'm talking about at a, at a more personal level, right? So the experience you had with your family, that you had with your with Lemon IO, the company you're working with, what are some of the things that you would tell people coming through this experience, and, and you're not through it yet, but living through this experience, what would you say to people about their lives, their families, their jobs, their companies? What advice, what guidance do you have for people? You know, I keep thanking myself uh, so much for every decision I made for the last two years. Because if we take it step by step, um, and I'm just going to tell you something why I think I'm super lucky and why it helped me survive like the beginning of the war and to be where I am right now. A few years ago, I had a depression. I fought it and I went to a psychiatrist who helped me a lot to uh, just understand where I am, who I am and how to fight back all the hard and difficult mental conditions and how to be a grown up woman, you know, how to be an adult, how to be simply mature. And especially during the wartime, I saw like, it doesn't matter how old are you? Like you keep saying like, I'm just 25. Yeah, I'm just 25, but I'm just a human being who I think like for me being a human being, it's extremely, extremely important. And I protect myself to be like, you might call me that I watch on the world through like violet lenses, pink lenses or whatever, but I think kindness and people support, it's extremely important and you have to be mentally mature. Doesn't matter what kind of age you are and you should start doing it since you're very, very little. Unfortunately, lots of grown up people, they, I can't say they were pretty mature. Yeah. So that's the first thing. If you need to, if you are already a mature person, wonderful. If you think that there is something you need to work on, don't be afraid to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or wherever, or just speak to your friends and just, just to grow 
that's it. The first thing. Um, the second thing, speaking of my job, Lemon Ayo, right? Um, when I decided that I need some changes, um, speaking of my career, uh, it was my highest priority to go to a company where I would share same values with those people. And I didn't really, I wasn't ready to actually change my job because I was in a great company on a great position. I made even more money than I'm, I'm making right now. But I just, I just needed another, another people near me, you know, in all crisis situations, people open up even more and Lemon Ayo opened up even, even more to me. And I'm always loyal, but right now I'm like, <laughs> I can't, can't even describe how loyal I would be to this team, to this company. Well, and to be a part of something that reflects your values. It's, yes. you know, you, you, you yeah. raise a couple of points that I think are, are so important. Let me just comment on a few things. First, um, I, I want you to know when I comment on the fact that you're 25, uh, it's because frankly, I'm in awe of you. I'm humbled uh, that uh, I, I don't know that I've met a lot of very extraordinary people in my life. Uh, I've had uh, sort of, if you know the movie Forrest Gump, my uh, my friends tell me I'm like, you know, Forrest Gump. I've met, you know, a simple guy who's met these incredible people and I've met Nobel laureates and physicists and I've literally met every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan. I've worked for and worked with generals, with directors of agencies. Uh, I haven't met many people with your courage. I, I say that absolutely truly. And I'm not just talking about your physical courage, but your strength that you bring to these conversations. And I think part of that, that really comes through when you're talking to me about not just your family, but when you're talking to me about your your work and you're talking about your relationship with Lemon.io, you're talking about living a life that is concordant with your values, right? You know your mind. And when you talk about becoming a mature woman, what I hear you saying is becoming comfortable with who you are and, and not having to meet a certain mold or expectations and not having to be, you know, this is the job you should have or this is how you should behave, but this is who Maria actually is and being comfortable in that, you know, to the point of even sharing and disclosing with us things that some people candidly wouldn't be brave enough to share in in this sort of a forum. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely extraordinary, you know, and, and the other thing I, I, you know, you bring to mind and I'd have to share with you, there's, uh, I, I'm a bibliophile. I read voraciously constantly. I'm sure you do. And I'm always rec asked to recommend books for different purposes. It turns out the one book I've recommended most often in the, in my life has been one written by uh, a guy named Victor Frankl. And it was, the book is called Man's Search for Meaning. I, I don't know if you ever read it, but we'll, we'll get you a copy. And at the risk of uh, spoiler alert and giving away the book, and I don't really, uh, Frankl was actually a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, he was Jewish, his family was Jewish, and he was interred in one of the concentration camps, in several of the concentration camps. I, Recall, he survived three of them. And in the course of that, his wife, his pregnant wife was murdered. Her and the baby were killed. His family members were killed. His parents, his sister, 
all his friends, all his family. Frankel was actually a psychologist before he went into the camps. And he was one of the great luminaries of psychology at the time. He was up there with Freud and Jung, and he was considered to be sort of the third light. And he had written this, this manifesto or this work outlining his perspective. And the Nazis even took that and they burned it. And so he has nothing. But he comes to a new realization when he's in the camps. And the, the quote that I love from him is, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And so if you have this meaning, you have this purpose, and he creates this new perspective on therapy, he calls logotherapy. And Maria, what I hear from you is that same sort of a thing, right? What, what you self-deprecatingly call pink glasses or rose-colored glasses or, or seeing the world through these lenses, this optimism that's what I hear from you is even in the midst of this horrific state of affairs. And by the way, everyone who's listening tends to, we think about the war in Ukraine. We forget that Ukraine went through the COVID pandemic, just like everybody else, right? It was devastating in Ukraine uh, as it was in the U.S., as it was in the Western world, as it was in the uh, Eastern world, as it was everywhere. And it was sort of in the midst of this that you get invaded that you are living through all these circumstances while you are trying to, frankly, navigate your own way in life and figure out who you are as a person. And you come out the other side of that now with this much more matured, uh, much more cultivated attitude. And, and, and I think there are lessons for all of us in that. I call all of this, all of such events uh, all of them that lead me to better results, to better me, even the war. And speaking of the positive sides of war, firstly, I fell in love even more with my boyfriend. I like, he's just an incredible human being who helped me and who helped my family a lot. And he, I mean, his family and him and the family village house where we are hiding right now uh, and where we evacuated from Kiev, it's actually his family village house. And you mentioned that we've been like nine, 10 people in the same uh, place. It's like in his place. And they went to evacuate my granddad under the occupied territory at that time. It was within the two or three weeks when the active bombing happened in Kiev and it's been like Russians they were going from the from the Belarusian side um, and that's where my granddad uh, was at that time so they went by car to the dangerous zone just to save my granddad you know and it's just uh, if he was listening to this podcast uh, I want to tell him I love him a lot <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you didn't tell us his name. What's his name? It's uh, Alexander, as well as uh, our founder. Alexander. Okay. So shout out to Alexander. When you listen to the podcast, know you got full credit. Uh, and, you know, it, it's so cool to hear that, to hear that story. And, and it's always struck me that these sort of things, these traumas, these tragedies have an effect in one or two direction. They either pull people apart or draw them together. And it's so heartening to hear that it was the latter 
with with you and Alexander that you know this brought you more together and I think it's such a testament to both of you and and who you are and it, it also to me you know when when I hear how you've shifted how you've changed uh your life your your focus even your a reexamination of your own values during the course of this you know not to keep waxing philosophic but one of the great philosophers John Lennon uh, said one of his songs, uh, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And, you know, I think that's so. And um, I I might be mistaken here, but I think it's the same Franklin as you've been recalling to earlier. I hadn't read the book yet, uh, but now I'm even more convinced I have to read it. Uh, but I think it was him who said, um, when I was in the concentration camps, uh, there were three types of people. The first ones broke up when um, those who were thinking that it will end soon. The second ones broke when they thought that it will last forever and survived those people who were thinking that um, they will need to continue in the current circumstances they are right now. And... Um, I just found that quote, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and that's so telling of, of your perspective and what you bring to this is this notion that, uh, and, and I do want to talk to you about what do you think the future will hold and what does the future look like uh, for Ukraine? But what I hear you saying, and and I, I think it's, again, such a, a an extraordinary perspective, is we can't lament what has happened and we can't just keep hoping for the future and that there'll be a better future, we have to live today, right? We have to live now and make the most of now. And that's why, like you and Alexander are seeing this, okay, it's an opportunity to coalesce a relationship, to bring the two of you together. You see your relationship with uh, Lemon.io uh, very much in the same way, right? Here's a company that you may have taken a hit uh, financially to be able to take this job, but, it, but it's consistent with who you are and what you believe in, and they're fighting the good fight. And and we'll get back and we'll talk a little bit about Lemon.io and, and how to fight the good fight and how our listeners can help you and help the people of Ukraine. What I'd love to hear from you, the importance of, you know, uh, the boxer Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And uh, I think it's important, though, to have a new plan, right, to be able to still respond. And so Ukraine got punched in the face by Russia. But what you're saying is we can't just lay down. We, we have to get up and we have to move forward. And is that a lesson, do you think, that other people can take, that we can say to ourselves in our own lives, you know, few of us are ever going to experience something as horrific as war, but we all have these things that happen in our life. Uh, what's your advice to people who have this, you know, these tragedies that enter into their life. And, and it may not even be as tragic as a war. It could be as tragic as you get fired or your car breaks down or, you know, these are still tragedies in your life, right? You, uh, you know, whatever, you, you know, you, you got diagnosed with uh, appendicitis and, and you're going to have to go in and get a, a quick surgery or cancer. Uh, what's your advice to people of how to remain that much more resilient, how to respond in these? 
Oh, holy cow. Well, that's uh, a really good question, uh, which I would ask uh, some of the best psychiatrists and U.S. psychologists in this world. <laughs> uh, I can just say the recipe that I have. Um, I believe in such situations, every person would have their own recipe. Um, at first, I would say it's it's always important to feel the emotions you have and to let them just if you feel sadness feel it yeah. but don't keep it too long in yourself at the moment when you think you can just try to stand up that's the moment when you just say like okay sadness you need to go away yes. i need to stand up and i will go i will carry everything i will face the circumstances of what's happening so acknowledge it but don't get stuck in it no don't get stuck for sure um that's the first thing uh experience and don't get stuck at the um loneliness emotion and then we always can make plans you know um short notice plans long-term plans we always have this opportunity i mean during war sometimes it the plans for just one minute up front you know you can't really plan for the next day during war times the only plan is to survive but still like for me how it was we were in the village house it was a springtime and Oh my God, I was making plans just to make a five minutes walk and just to embrace the nature, the greenness around me, just to breathe. That was my plan. And I was waiting it every day. I was so excited just to go around and just to see how trees grow, how flowers grow and everything. So at some point you will be at that spot where you can plan more long-term. More things are coming and just look around yourself there are so many yeah. beautiful things around you at any moment at any moment it's wonderful to hear you know and and speaking of that i'd love to hear your thoughts on what does the future look like for the people of ukraine for ukraine then i want to talk about you talk to me a little bit about when we forward the clock a year three years five years do you see re ukraine returning to the Ukraine you grew up in, know and love? I always loved Ukraine, but I cannot say I was always proud for Ukraine. That's a really, really good question that you raised up. Um, again, I'm only 25 and I was born already in the independent Ukraine. I wasn't, I didn't experience Soviet times. At the same time, uh, we had a huge heritage left sure. after the Soviet times. And in the 90s, in the beginning of 2000s, that wasn't something that like everything was gray. It's like, uh, I don't know, you've been to Moscow and uh, probably, you, I believe you've been studying there, right? Yeah, I did. And I believe institutions are pretty the same right now in every post-Soviet country. They don't have the best infrastructure. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement, sure. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I've been traveling to Moscow to our family. Moscow was much more developed at that time compared to Kiev. And then I also had my mom who've been traveling to US to get uh, education in Princeton, by the way, but not in the Princeton University, but <laughs> uh, Princeton Educational Center. Um, 
I really saw like all the gifts she was bringing me from US and what she was telling, like the country of opportunities and everything. It was so bright to me. And then I also saw this Hollywood movies and everything. And then I saw Ukraine as a great country. You know, I can say I was proud of it, but I loved our culture and I loved our people. And I could definitely say I love Ukraine. And then revolution happened in 2014. At that time, I was about to become the conscious human being. Before that, I was just a kid, and obviously. When revolution happened, that was just an event that showed that we actually can change things here, you know? And that's when I started volunteering pretty actively. And I could open any door. I could do like whatever just got into my mind the Soviet heritage was telling me, like, I can do it. I, I, I cannot do it. Like, it's it's impossible. Nothing is, it's, it's impossible to change something. But I was like, at least I'm going to try. Yeah. So you grew up and you flourished alongside Ukraine, right? So as Ukraine became independent in 2014, you did too. And you started to grow in parallel with the country that's yeah. that's so cool uh yeah. it's funny how the human development mirrors the societal development i can say the country changed significantly since 2014 yeah significantly like if you would be traveling to kiev or elsewhere in ukraine within three months like every three months you will see some changes in a better way that's awesome so do you think will return to that path? Do you think Ukraine will get, once these hostilities are over, once Putin is hopefully, frankly, dies of blood cancer or removed from power, something happens uh, to change things. Do you think if things were to change or, or to end today, if the war were to end today, do you think Ukraine will return to the path it was on, to that notion of continuing to evolve, to grow, to become this mature country? It's, it will not just return, it will be even quicker. And I can say that even the, during the war time, some of the initiatives, they still continues. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, as an outsider, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, what about Maria, though? Uh, what's next for you? Where would you... Uh, I'm going to assume you're not just content, uh, <laughs> overachiever that you are. What, what is next on your horizon? What would you like to accomplish? What, what's the big goal for next? Uh, I will answer this uh, question, and then I would love to come back slightly to what we've been just discussing about Ukraine. And speaking of me, about my plans, Um what do you want? If I could give you magic wishes, if I were a genie right now, what are the three things you would wish for? Uh, the first one, it's something that I always wanted desperately and that two times I wasn't able to um, accomplish due to financial uh, situation is I really wanted to get an abroad educational experience and either like 
Tell me the dream. Stanford MBA program. It's like my number one, but there is one. The Stanford? Has, yeah, there is one MBA program that I actually applied a few days ago. It's Oxford MBA program. Wow. So to be, <laughs> because you haven't achieved nearly enough uh, to get an MBA from a an, uh, prestigious institution, Stanford, Oxford, uh, one of the institutions. By the way, um, we have a, a pretty great group of listeners. And so uh, I'm going to encourage anyone who's listening who can help Maria, uh, anyone who knows someone in the admissions uh, <laughs> arena. I, you know, I'm serious. I was on the uh, the graduate selection committee for uh, universities, for the City University of New York. Uh, I And I taught in the MBA program there. And, uh, you know, I, I think anyone who is looking for somebody who is and, and I'll tell you, Maria, giving you sort of the inside track, what we look for when we look for MBA candidates, when we look for grad school candidates, is someone who can do the institution proud. Uh, that's really it. Uh, the only really two things we look for, uh, and this is an absolute truism, I think anyone who's listening who has anything to do with university admissions will acknowledge this, is number one, uh, someone who has a high likelihood of actually completing the program. We don't like quitters, right? We like someone who will have the tenacity, the the resilience to be able to overcome the challenges they face, the adversity, whatever's thrown in their path, and they will succeed. And holy moly, do you have that? Holy, I'm going to steal your phrase. Holy caramels, do you have that? And then some. And then the other thing is someone who will do uh, the institution proud. Somebody who, when they go out and they show that diploma, we want our name on it. They want somebody who they can say, yep, she's one of our alums. Uh, she got her education with us. And so I, I say in all, all seriousness, any one of our listeners who can help Maria on her journey, her academic journey, I think you would be doing yourself a favor by bringing her in. Uh, I got to tell you, if I were on the acceptance committee of Stanford or Oxford, you're in. So hopefully they're listening and, and, and they'll uh, help you along that path. So that was number one. What else would you wish for? In your- I always had this just urge inside me, um, entrepreneurial urge that I want to create something useful for people and like create the business, make it great, and then go ahead to the next one. Um, right now, I do have the similar thing, but... I would call it even a mission right now. Uh, speaking of Ukraine, um, I love my country so much. And I can't even describe how much I love it. And I face all the time that people barely know anything about my country. And in fact, in 2018, there was um, a study conducted by uh, the British government, I believe. Um, If you'd like to, I will get all the credentials, how Ukraine is perceived abroad. Um, And the results are corruption, revolution, and war. Wow. Ukraine is much, much more than that. Yeah. I would say there is barely any corruption, actually, uh, by speaking of facts, and I can prove it easily. Yeah. Uh, So the mission is, is I really want to build the real brand of Ukraine about who we are, what it is in reality. And to me, Ukraine is just an underdog who can be a unicorn 
speaking of speaking in startups. Yeah, I, I think that is such a great perspective. You know, I I have this unfortunate experience of being quoted accurately in the press because I say a lot of dumb things. But I got quoted in the press one time in the Wall Street Journal. What my quote was, they were asking me about, you know, I, I did a lot of work with marketing and branding. And at the time, I think I was at the time working for Time Inc. And what I told them was, Politics is a product, pretty much like any other, and same requirements for branding it. And, and I think it's so such as a, a cool perspective you're coming from of how do we brand Ukraine more effectively, right? How do you change the brand of Ukraine? And I don't think you, – you see some countries think about that with tourism, but that's about it. Uh, they'll – you know, uh, Aruba gets in trouble – uh, because of whatever it is, and they'll do all these commercials or, you know, come to Jamaica or those kind of things for tourism. I'm, my family, my wife, uh, and her whole side of the family is from Nevada. And of course, Las Vegas and Reno, you know, they're great at branding. But uh, I, I think that's such a cool idea to rebrand Ukraine and to change the public perception of it. So I love that. So that's two, two of the three uh, wishes I've given you. Let's let's create an entity or an organization that can help rebrand Ukraine uh, and change the global perception of who Ukraine is. Which, by the way, to your point of this misperception of it being about corruption, that sort of thing, this is consequential, right? That's why Ukraine wasn't admitted to NATO. Why Ukraine wasn't immediately entered into the EU. Uh, so this is, you know, not inconsequential that there are these misperceptions out there. And they are, for the record, anyone who's listening, Maria is exactly right. These are just misperceptions. During the Soviet era, yes, there was rampant corruption in Ukraine. But they, since 2014, since the changes have been made, uh, it's uh, and I've seen the data, I there's a, a gross misperception that Ukraine is on the list of most corrupt nations. It's absolutely not. So those are the two of the three. What's the third one? Uh, I just want the war to be over. And I want it to be over in Ukraine favor, obviously. And by that mean, I mean the territories which were Ukrainian territories in 1991 till 2014. If that happens, I'm going to be the happiest girl on earth in the universe. Well... I, I think we're going to share that happiness with you, Marie. I, I can't convey how how thrilled I am that you took this time to talk with us. I, I know your life is very busy. This means a great deal to me um, and to our listeners, I'm sure. I'm going to ask you a couple of things. Number one, I'm going to ask you to help us curate a list of links that we can put up on the website that we can point people toward to either make uh humanitarian donations. I know uh, some of your friends started a nonprofit to actually make bulletproof vests. Wow. Uh, I'd like to get people some information about that, about uh, some of the the more, let's say, credible, reputable entities and organizations that people can, can donate to. I also want to post on the site how they can work with Ukrainian-based companies like Lemon.io. Just for the record, we uh, have worked, well, that's how Marie and I first met, was uh, we were working with Lemon.io to hire a developer who we are beyond thrilled with. And uh, we are going to be hiring more and more and more. And we're 
expanding our team now that we're living in a world where everything is virtual anyway, we're going to be expanding more and more and more. Uh, and we're actually uh, in conversations with Lemon.io to convert some of these uh, who are contractors into full-time positions. Because uh, we're just, you know, those of you who are in the geek world who work around coders know that some of the best technologists come out of Ukraine. And even the folks that Lemon.io is working with that are not just in Ukraine, but they are a great mediator of good talent. And they've just, I can't sing their praises highly enough. They're, they're absolutely fantastic. And just to let all of you know, we don't have advertisers uh, on this podcast and we're not compensated. In fact, we pay Lemon.io, uh, not the other way around. So uh, my my phrase is absolutely credible. And so we're going to post recommendations for that. Uh, we'll post some links for the book that I mentioned, certainly, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl, and uh, anything else that Maria can think of and she recommends. Any parting words before we uh, close our conversation, Maria, any piece of advice, anything you'd like to share? Yes, JT, uh, first of all, I can't be thankful enough to you with everything you were just saying and for inviting me here. And yeah, it is just incredible to know to know you as a person. Uh, and um, I'm super happy and thrilled to have a chance to meet you. Uh, speaking of how people can help Ukraine, um, I was reaching out to my friends asking like, okay, like I know them and they really started nonprofit organizations and they've been um, making bulletproof our best. But the thing is, they already closed the organization because the demand is not that high <laughs> anymore. So uh, I'm going to share slightly different links and share the ways how people could help from any part of the world. Firstly, please donate. And again, I'm going to share the links, uh, the best links for each country where, we, where you can donate money, send humanitarian supplies, uh, join or organize a protest in your city, or you can also influence authorities directly. And I believe you know the best way to do that uh, in your, again, own, own country. Hire Ukrainians and help them with logistics in the place uh, where you live, because um, unfortunately, Ukrainians had to evacuate um, from the bombings and everything, and they are looking for jobs. They don't want to be just refugees, and they don't want to be like just on the governmental aid. They Ukrainians are incredibly hardworking, responsible, and respectful people. They just need an opportunity to grab this opportunity and work. So they might don't know the language perfectly uh, wherever you are but trust me they will learn it they will pick up it quickly and they are professionals at what they do and those who would would be willing to please and try into the foreign legion uh, speaking of the links i'm going to share two uh, the first one is a help ukraine center it is being led by the ministry of health and uh, they post their urgent needs uh, right here right now uh, only humanitarian ones uh, the second uh, link is going to be a comprehensive list of different resources how to help ukraine and ukrainians this one is being leaded by the cabinet of ministers of ukraine super trustworthy sources and 
again, I cannot say how much, I cannot thank enough all the countries, all the people, how much support we get right now. Unfortunately, it's not enough, but what I also know is that once everything is ended, Ukrainians will be thanking twice, triple times more than what we would receive uh, right now. You know, and I think that's so wonderful, Maria. It's when your neighbor's house is on fire, you bring over your hose, help put out the fire. You don't worry about what your water bill will be. Ukrainians are not asking for a handout. They're asking for a hand up. They're asking for our help. It's the only human thing to do is to help, Uh, which the one thing I will disagree with you on, though, Maria, is you talk about the language constraints. Everyone who's listening, let's remember, English is not Maria's first language. (laughs) Maria, what languages do you speak? Uh, not so many, but now when I travel to, like, I went to Portugal, now in Germany, and um, so I, I kind of speak English, Ukrainian, Russian, obviously, and they kind of speak French, but my pronunciation is so bad in French that I prefer not to. <laughs> to anyone listening, if your Ukrainian is better than Maria's English, call in and let me know, because... <laughs> Maria's uh, English is, uh, I keep telling her it's better than my uh, English, <laughs> let alone my Russian or no. Ukrainian or, or French. And uh, I'll remind you also, those of you who are looking for coders, the machine's language is zeros and ones. And that is a language in which uh, Ukrainian developers are absolutely fluent. Maria, the one thing I will ask of you is a commitment to Please come back and join us again in a couple of months uh, and let us know how things have been progressing, how things are going for you, for Lemon.io, for Ukraine, uh, for your family. We would love to stay in touch and hear more from you. Again, a million thanks to you. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. And for those of you listening, I hope you got some insight on how you can be a little bit more resilient in how you can learn some of the lessons that Maria shared with us to try your best to make for a better tomorrow today. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode. We really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed the conversation. We just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the Tomorrow Today podcast is a nonprofit venture committed to bringing awareness important social issues. Funding for this episode, like all our episodes, has been provided by Protected by AI and CodeLock. Protected by AI develops leading-edge solutions at the intersection of technology and psychology. Check out some of the ways Protected by AI can revolutionize your organization by visiting protectedby.ai, protectedby.ai. And CodeLock? CodeLock is a game-changing software security solution that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has said, and I'm quoting you, quote, CodeLock appears to have the capability to stop the most sophisticated criminal malware." end quote. You can learn more about CodeLock by visiting CodeLock.it, CodeLock.it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the conversation. And please do check out Protected by AI and CodeLock. Tomorrow Today is only possible because of their sponsorship and because you're listening. And be sure to visit us at our website, 
tomorrowtoday.show, where you'll find show notes, links, and most importantly, ways to subscribe to the show. You can also give us a review, leave us a message, or tell us what topics you'd like us to address in upcoming episodes. Thanks to all of you again for joining the conversation and for helping us make a better tomorrow today.